Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and history podcast. You're listening to episode 16, Norwegian Government Collapse of Horror. Grizzly greetings, mortals. Do not adjust your podcast engine. We are in control. I am the titan of terror, Goreth Hororons. And I am the sultan of scream, Tomb Chilliamson. And welcome to the other side, the plane of torment known only in whispers as Retrospecticus. The Simpsons, modern history and bone-chilling horror, together for eternity! In each blood-curdling edition, we'll discuss an eerie episode of The Simpsons, and a major hissed horror ickle happening from the time the episode first scared in the boo-ess. You'll ghoul where we ghoul. Quote the raven when we quote the raven. Blow more dust from that which we blow more dust from! (laughs) Oh, And uh, today I'll be discussing Season 2, Number 3, Treehouse of Horror, which first aired on October the 25th, 1990. And in a break from talking about the end of the Cold War, I'm going to be talking about the government of Norway, which collapsed on November 3rd, 1990, nine days after Treehouse of Horror first aired. It's surprisingly topical, as the coalition government collapsed over the differences towards Norway's potential entry into the European Economic Area, the predecessor of the EU. Ah, scary and topical. Yes. Very good. If you'd like to give us the Spanish ectoplasm, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus, don't forget the underscore or be damned for all time, or send us an electric eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Okay, and with that hokey horror conceit uh, over and done with, let's get straight into the episode. Season 2, Episode 3, Treehouse of Horror, aired on October the 25th, 1990. It was production number 7F04. It had a US viewership of 14.6 million viewing households. No, that's not pairs of eyes. I'm a little bit uh, out of order on what kind of uh, ratings I can get. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a Nielsen of 15.7 it was 25th in the ratings in total for the week and it was the highest rated Fox show but Goreth I hear you howl what banshee whale topped ye British charts that week why it's the beautiful south with a little slime uh, the beautiful south with a little time oh, right. the beautiful south the absolute embodiment of British mediocrity. Yes, good. I'm glad you said it. They have their roots in the House Martins, who featured one of our previous hit makers, Norman Cook of Beats International, Freak Power, and, you know, that other one. Uh, uh, name, name escapes me. Yeah. Um, anyway, the House Martins were a surprisingly acerbic and political bunch, with even radio-friendly hits like Happy Hour being the lyrical equivalent of a steel fist in a velvet glove. And the beautiful South, well, they weren't so much. Uh, They tended to specialise in kitchen sink dramas. Mm. Um, It's lead singer Paul Heaton and drummer Dave Hemingway that moved on to this project, though the addition of singer Brianna Corrigan gives this particular song its motif of a doomed couple finally imploding, told from both points of view. Worth noting, by the way, that it's Hemingway singing the male part rather than Heaton. Despite their ubiquitousness in the early to mid-90s, this was actually their only singles chart number one. 
they had a lot more luck in the album charts, particularly with their 1994 greatest hits album, Carry On Up The Charts, which went platinum five times and was claimed to be one in seven British households. That is so depressing. That is so depressing. <laughs> it's, there's nothing particularly wrong with them, but it's just such middle of the road. I think the second single I ever bought was Perfect Ten, and I bought it because I had five pounds worth of Woolworths vouchers to spend. <laughs> See, I, I get the feeling that's uh, where a lot of the purchases of Carry On Up The Charts came from. Uh, Quite possibly. Vouchers that were going out of date. I, I will say I do like the, their very first single, Song For Whoever, I think is a, is a neat little piece of songwriting. But uh, it's not, yeah, well, I mean, I listen to punk, so it's not exactly going to kind of kick my doors down, is it? No, uh, no, it, 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 it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of that middle of a roadness of the Lighthouse family, really. Yeah, that's a good comparison, actually. Mm. In many ways, the American beautiful South. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, the beautiful American South. Anyway, <laughs> before we get too far off topic, uh, let's get to the episode. We don't get our normal opening. What we get instead is Marge walking onto a stage and giving us a warning about the content to come, including stating that she entirely washes her hands of the ensuing half hour, which actually makes a lot of sense. We'll see her in the stories... But she only appears right at the end in real time, as it were. So it's mm. almost like she's not appearing in the episode as a protest. Yes. Uh, you also noted earlier that it actually is a warning. Yeah, it's genuine. It, it, it's telling you that if you've got kids and they're scared by things, don't watch this programme. Which is really weird watching it now because it's so tame. Yeah. As, especially with what did happen in The Simpsons later where, you know, there's that bit with the badger where Homer's... <laughs> Guts are all exposed, and there's that one where he's in, into his robot wars and gets his arms cut off or something like that. So, yeah, this is, is just, yeah. Not, not a huge amount of gore happens in this one. No, no. With our opening adjusted, we also lose our usual chalkboard and couch gags. Mm. Now, for the first five Treehouse of Horror episodes, we will instead see a number of humorous gravestones. This episode gives us several ancient Simpsons, Ezekiel, Ishmael, and Cornelius V. Simpson, Plus Garfield, The Grateful Dead, Elvis, Paul McCartney, Disco, and my particular favourite, Casper the Friendly Boy. <laughs> of course. I did want to do a huge bit about the rumour that Paul McCartney is dead, uh, which this is obviously a, a reference oh, to. Yeah. But that in itself is a maddening rabbit hole to go down. Oh, of full course of, it is. Uh, full of rumour and counter-rumour. So given that we're a relatively sceptical podcast and yeah. given that there's, there's so little fact involved in the whole thing, I decided just to bin the whole thing. Yeah, I, do, I don't blame you, but, but, but if you want to go and look up the Paul McCartney is dead conspiracy, it's absolutely fascinating what people will believe. Absolutely fascinating. So rather than a single story... Uh, or, in an increasing number of episodes at this point of The Simpsons, one in-depth story in the less important, though sometimes intersecting, B-plot. Treehouse of Horror consisted of three shorter stories. I feel like I'm doing that angry video game nerd thing of, uh, you know, back in those days it was all, <laughs> you know, trees around here and that kind of thing. But yeah. at, at the time this was a, you know, this was a, a breakout for The Simpsons rather mm. than a yearly, the yearly event that, uh, spoilers, it would come to be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, the anthology format was the writer's way of paying homage to horror anthology comics uh, and programs, such as EC Comics' Tales from the Crypt. And in some, some of these uh, Treehouse of Horror episodes, particularly the early ones, there's linking material between the stories as well. Uh, in this case, 
Bart and Lisa are telling each other scary stories in Bart's treehouse. Literally a treehouse of horror. Mm. We as the audience are in Homer's shoes as he listens into them. As we join them, Lisa has just finished a story and Bart is not impressed. He offers instead the story of Bad Dream House. <laughs> Writer John Schwartzwelder, who doesn't exist mm-hmm. and who we've discussed before back in episode 5, Bart the First McDonald's in Moscow. That's right. Yeah. The Simpsons move into a mansion, but eerie goings-on immediately ensue, with poltergeist activity, mysterious blood, and a portal to another dimension amongst the wonders within. Marge and the kids want to leave the clearly haunted house, but Homer insists they sleep on it. It's revealed that the house is somehow sentient and wants rid of its new occupants. To this end, it possesses almost all of the family and drives them to kill each other, except for some reason it doesn't get Marge, who manages to snap everyone out of it. Lisa discovers that the house is built on a Native American burial ground, and Homer complains to his real estate agent, who reminds him that he told Homer about that five or six times. <laughs> the house has one last attempt at driving them away, but is given a telling off by Marge, who tells it they will all have to get on and live together. The house asks them to step outside while it thinks about it, before voluntarily imploding rather than continuing to live with the Simpsons. <laughs> quite, um, quite a simple one, that. Quite mm. to the point. I'm not mad keen on it, as Treehouse of Horror segments go. No, no, it's 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 quite it's quite tame by their standards, but there are lots of little what do you call them, one frame jokes for sort of blinking you'll miss them type thing. Yeah. Like um I only just noticed that in the what they call an Indian burial ground, there are uh, lots of tombstones and they've got names of famous Native Americans, but there's also Crazy Horse and not so crazy horse. <laughs> And one of them says Mahatma Gandhi. Absolutely. Because he's Indian, which is the sort of joke that um, you would attribute to the non-existent John Schwartzwelder, because it's kind of offensive, maybe? Absolutely. Uh, Tonto is also in there. Who oh, right. was the, the fictional companion of the Lone Ranger. So, uh, yep. A few, uh, few fuddies in there. Yep. Um, right, so back to the treehouse. Uh, and it's Lisa's turn to be unimpressed, both by the story and Bart's fake severed finger. Luckily, it was just a warm-up for a mockery tale, which he calls <laughs> Hungry Are the Damned. Mm. Writers Jay Cogan and Wallace Wolodarski, who we've discussed before back in episode three, The Morris Worms Odyssey. Mm-hmm. Whilst barbecuing at night, the Simpsons are abducted by a flying saucer, though it requires two tractor beams to lift Homer. Their abductors are the Rigelians Kang and Kodos, and they are to be taken to Rigel 4, a world of infinite delights, but where entertainment has not evolved beyond Pong. The gracious hosts feed and weigh the family. As a side note, the food includes fried shrimp for Lisa, mm-hmm. which we've already established is her favourite in Homer's Night Out, so a not-yet-vegetarian Lisa there. That's right. She becomes suspicious when they are told they will be guests of honour at a feast on arrival. She confronts the Rigelians when she finds a book that appears to be called How to Cook Humans. However, in a joke that still makes me laugh to this day, it transpires that there's some space dust on the cover, which when removed shows the title to be How to Cook for Humans. The removal of further dust shows the title as How to Cook 40 Humans, and once the final bit of dust is removed, it's actually How to Cook for 40 Humans. (laughs) That is not a joke that makes sense when you read it out. No, it's not, but it, but it's a joy to watch. 
However, this misunderstanding has shattered the trust between the Rigelians and the family, and they are returned to their garden, having made Serac the Preparer cry. Lisa is left to ruefully note that there were monsters on that ship, and that they were the Simpsons. Mm. Mm. See, that's a bit better. I like that one a bit better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got some nice morality there. Yeah. Yeah. But hold on to your hats, because we're going into a a stone-cold classic here. So, back at the treehouse... Lisa is reading a book and begins to read it to Bart, having guaranteed that he won't learn anything from it. (laughs) Which leads us to story three, The Raven. Writers, Sam Simon, who we probably discussed in the pilot, but please don't listen to the pilot, it's really not worth it. Mm -hmm. And Edgar Allan Poe. Yes. Yes. This episode features the first and only Simpsons writing credit for this young, hungry (laughs) go-getter. Although, as we've touched on previously, sometimes the credited name isn't the one that came up with the idea. And let's face it, the Raven has John Schwartzwelder written all over it. <laughs> Poe, who is uh, the original goth in South Park lore, known by his goth name of Night Pain, yep. was born on January 19th, 1809, and died on October the 7th, 1849, leaving behind a pretty staggering body of work and legacy for someone who was only a year older than me at his time of death. I, on the other hand, have under 20 episodes of this podcast as my main creative legacy. <laughs> oh, I've wasted my life. <laughs> Having left the army and married his 13-year-old cousin, Poe worked in literary criticism. When The Raven was published in 1845, it became extremely popular extremely quickly, though he was apparently only paid $9 for its publication. He married his 13-year-old cousin. Yeah, I thought I'd better go through that one pretty yeah. quickly yeah d- d- did he live in Shelbyville <laughs> I'm, I'm not even sure Shelbyville had been um, uh, founded at that no, stage possibly not I'll have to look into the dates okay um, in 1847 his wife died though she hadn't fully recovered from consumption some years previously so whilst we can't be sure the theme of having lost a loved one may have been inspired by the likely upcoming death of his wife He was apparently found wandering the streets in great distress, and oddly, and I can't find an explanation for this, or why it's mentioned, clothes that weren't his own, on October the 3rd, 1849, and did not remain lucid enough to explain how that came to be, (laughs) dying four days later. His reported cause of death was congestion of the brain, which may have been a euphemism for alcoholism. Right. Away from The Raven, he is credited with popularising detective fiction and often used pseudoscience such as phrenology in his works. Though this may simply have been an attempt to tap into the Zeke East of the Times and we should note that kind of thinking was publicly popular and had not been entirely dismissed at the time he was active. No, no. And phrenology is still kind of trendy today. It's not at all uncommon to see a little bust of a phrenology head on on fancy desks, for example. True, true. In fact, my friend Sam collects those. Oh, right, okay. Hi, Sam, if you're listening. <laughs> so this segment is quite hard to describe in the way that I normally describe segments. But essentially, we have James Earl Jones reading us the Edgar Allan Poe poem, The Raven. And that can't be a bad thing. No, that's brilliant. Homer portrays the protagonist. Bart is the raven. Marge appears in portrait form as Lenore. And Maggie and Lisa have a walk-on, or should I say a float-on, as a sensor-swinging seraphim. (laughs) 
I was actually just going to read the poem, but I figured that's a tad self-indulgent, so I'm staying away from that. Yeah. But suffice it to say, if you've never seen this segment, you need to sort that out. Oh yeah, it's 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 an absolute joy because you've got you've got James Earl Jones reading the Raven, and it's juxtaposed with Homer's voice, and he jumps in at times, and you've got Bart being the Raven, and he throws in little Bartisms like like the way he says "nevermore" is very close to "eat my shorts." Yeah, yeah, it's it, it, it's an absolute joy that bit. And there's um, Dan Castellaneta. His uh, contributions cannot be undervalued on this. His reading of "Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door," mm. the the sheer rage in that yeah, is yeah. it's it's just absolutely amazing. It's such an achievement. It's so confident and bold a move for a program that is essentially in its infancy. Mm. Um, it's it's just presenting a piece of classic literature and it's trusting its audience to take that that leap with them yeah absolutely absolutely amazing stuff i mean the, there's a slight change in the wording some bits have been cut for timing uh, yeah hath is have mm-hmm. and obviously as we've uh, touched upon i'm sure everybody remembers the first time the raven speaks he says eat my shorts mm-hmm. rather than never more <laughs> but other than that it's just a reading of the poem and it's absolutely spectacular mm, definitely it really is can't say enough good things about it after the poem, Bart notes that he finds it rather tame, and the kids are called to bed, leaving a frightened Homer shivering and unable to sleep with the light off. <laughs> and through the window, he spies the raven. And that's it. That's yeah. the end of Treehouse of Horror. Yeah. And who could have told at the time that it would go on to be an, an institution? Yes, yes. There have been, like, two dozen Treehouses of Horror, and it's... There has been one for every series. Really? Except for series one. Oh, my word. So it's Treehouse 30 next year in season 31, which news reaches me is going to happen. Oh. Just today it's been announced 31 of the 32. What? Why? (laughs) But I'm still keeping up with it. I I still think it's uh, it's decent myself, but it's never going to hit those heights again. No. But that's partly our age, partly their age, and partly the way television gets made these days. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anyway... There's some auspicious character debuts in this one. Kag and Kodos. <laughs> and Serac the Preparer, who is yet to return as far as I can tell. Yes. Kag is voiced by Harry Shearer. Its sister Kodos is voiced by Dan Castellaneta. And Serac is voiced by James Earl Jones, which probably explains why he hasn't been back. Mm-hmm. That's an actor that isn't as available and I assume is more expensive. Mm-hmm. Mind you, is anyone more expensive than the Simpsons voice actors these days? Well, these days, no. Mm. Getting old. <laughs> Kag and Kodos' names are also the names of Star Trek characters. Um, presumably they were taken from there. Serac is an anagram of Sarek, which is the name of Spock's father. Uh, but I'm not sure if that was intentional, because it's a, it's a pretty alien name anyway, so it could just be a coincidence, that one. Yeah. The tentacled Rigelians, not to be confused with the similarly designed space mutants from the in-universe film franchise of the same name, have become mascots for Treehouse of Horror episodes, sometimes as the main focus of stories, and other times more blatantly shoehorned in, but always there. Mm-hmm. There has been some controversy more recently. Treehouse of Horror episodes are non-canon, but Kag and Kodos did appear in a main canon episode, which is mm. season 26, episode 10, The Man Who Came to Dinner, which is also considered to be made into The Simpsons Movie 2. Mm. But it shouldn't have been, because it was a pretty rubbish story, to be honest. It's basically 
this one from this Treehouse of Horror, but stretched out to an extent that nobody really wants. So, are they canon? Unlike Brock in the Hanna-Barbera Godzilla cartoon, whose non-canonicity is total and undeniable, it's a question that will have to remain open. <laughs> Shall we close on some digi-nos? Oh, yes, please. find out about the Norwegian government? Yep. Fantastic. So, Hungry Are the Damned is a spin on the 1962 Twilight Zone episode To Serve Man, which itself is based on the 1950 short story To Serve Man, written by Damon Knight. And I'm awfully sorry, I've got to do the intro for the Twilight Zone episode as it's an absolute corker. Respectfully submitted for your perusal. Academite. Height, a little over nine feet. Weight, in the neighbourhood of 350 pounds. Origin, unknown. Motives? Therein hangs the tale, for in just a moment, we're going to ask you to shake hands, figuratively, with a Christopher Columbus from another galaxy and another time. This is the Twilight Zone. Fantastic. Anyway, in that one, spoilers, it is a cookbook and they are eating us. So there's nice. Ah, okay. And just a very quick one here. Uh, The books that the Raven drops on Homer are other Edgar Allan Poe stories. The Pit and the Pendulum, The Purloined Letter, and The Telltale Heart, which would feature heavily in Season 6, Episode 2, Lisa's Rival. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Right, well, that's Halloween out of the way. Let's get to Norway. Okay, Norway. Okay, so Norway in 1990. It's a fair way from where all the historical action was taking place during this period, as it's a fair distance from Moscow and even further from Iraq. We haven't done the Gulf War yet, but we'll get there. But nine days after Treehouse of Horror first aired, its government collapsed over the issue of EEA membership. We'll get onto that in due course, but first some facts and history about Norway. Woo! (laughs) As of February 2019, the population of Norway is just over 5 million, with 600,000 living in the capital, Oslo. The territory of Norway extends from the southwest of the Scandinavian peninsula, where Oslo is, all the way up to the north giving Norway about 1,600 miles of coastline. Oh, is that a record? Um, Oh, no, wait, Russia. uh, Yeah, yeah. Around half of Norway lies within the Arctic Circle, with almost 400,000 people living within that area. Its most northern city is Tromsø, a sparsely populated city within the Arctic Circle with clear skies, making it the ideal place to see the Good Lord, what is happening in there? Aurora Borealis? Yes. So yes, uh, um, yeah. So 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 go to Tromso if you want to see the Northern Lights and do a whole steamed hams thing. <laughs> okay, so the history of Norway is related to the history of UK, and it certainly made at least one lasting impression thanks to the Vikings. Now the term Viking is a bit of a derogatory one, and it conjures up an image of barbarous, bloodthirsty warriors who rock up at a monastery and are only there to rape and pillage. Now, while that was largely true of the Scandinavian raiders who attacked the church of St. Cuthbert on Lindisfarne in 793, the same cannot be said for the ones who came later and stayed. In 865 AD, various Scandinavian leaders, including Halfdan Ragnarsson and the oddly named Ivar the Boneless, combined their forces and invaded England. After much fighting, Alfred the Great signed a treaty with the Viking leader Guthrum, which led to England being more or less split in half, with the English controlling the south 
and the north becoming the Danelaw, where the Danes held the most influence. Therefore, the Scandinavians pretty much gave us the north-south divide. I'm sorry, I've got to go back to Ivar the Boneless. Ivar the Boneless. But yes, I have absolutely no idea why Ivar the Boneless is called Ivar the Boneless. The the son of Sven with not many bones. Uh, Possibly. (laughs) Ragnar Lodbrok, that's who he's he's the son of. Oh, right, okay. Well, well, I hear he had bones, so... As far as I'm aware, he did. I just don't think... I think that would be the... The least threatening non-diplum <laughs> you could attach to something. Well, well, th- th- there are lots of really interesting names of various kings throughout, like medieval times and that sort of thing. I'm thinking Charles the Bald of France, who was bald. Oh, okay. I'm sure there was also a king called Henry the Bastard. <laughs> I hope that's true. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure there was, but um, it, yeah, he had that name because he was an illeg- an illegitimate child. Simple as that. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't always the swear. So uh... no, absolutely, absolutely. Anyway, so north south divide. North south divide. Yes, and you could argue that we pretty much have that today because you look at England and you think of cities in the north, especially the northeast. They tend to be a bit more a bit more hardy than where I'm from, even though Norwich was in the Danelaw. So, uh, yeah, so my <laughs> analogy completely falls down there. <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, that's that's what the Scandinavians gave us. wasn't just the Norwegians, but also the Danes and Swedes as well. So, back in Norway, the country itself became united in 872 under the rule of Harold Fairhair. Who had fair hair, presumably. Right, okay. So following this, Norway was at peace until 1130, when civil war broke out due to unclear succession laws. And these wars would last until 1217. So basically various tribes arguing over who should be king of Norway. In 1349, the Black Death took hold and Norway lost about half of its population, During this time, the Hanseatic League became very influential in Norway and established a trading centre in Bergen. Shall I do a bit about the Hanseatic League? Oh, please. Please do. Okay, so the Hanseatic League was a confederation of towns and cities set up to promote and protect trade in the Baltic and Northern European regions. Their main base was the port of Lübeck, which today is on the north coast of Germany, just to the east of Denmark. And the League grew to dozens of cities, running all the way up to Russia. The League even had its own armed forces, and was therefore extremely powerful. Okay. So they're basically controlling most of the south coast of the Baltic through trade. And and often Scandinavian interests would clash with Hanseatic interests. So towards the end of the 14th century... Several events happened which ended up with Norway entering into unions with its Scandinavian neighbours. To start with, Olaf Hackensen inherited both the thrones of Norway and Denmark, leading to a union between the two countries. Then, in 1397, Norway became part of the Kalmar Union, which united Sweden, Norway and Denmark against the Hanseatic League. So they're all trying to get together to uh, become more powerful, essentially. So the Kalmar Union was run to favour Denmark, with the lesser partners of Sweden and Norway being sidelined. Sweden left the Union in 1521, 
Rebels in Norway fought to make Norway independent, but the rebellion was put down by the Danes. Norway would remain in a union with Denmark until 1812. In the Napoleonic Wars, Denmark sided with France, found itself on the losing side, and was forced to cede Norway to Sweden after signing the Treaty of Kiel. However, Norway declared its independence, adopted constitution, founded its parliament, the Storting, and elected the Crown Prince of Norway and Denmark, Christian Frederick, to be their king. This happened on May 17th, which to this day is celebrated in Norway as their Constitution Day. Naturally, Sweden wasn't happy with Norway's independence, and it led to a war between the two countries. The war ended in stalemate, and under pressure from Britain and Russia, Norway and Sweden came to a compromise where they formed a union with Charles XIII of Sweden as king, but Norway was allowed to keep their constitution. Okay. So, if, so you know, officially, Norway and Sweden are the same country, but Norway's got its own parliament, essentially. Sometime in the 18th or 19th century, Scandinavia would bring something to an English port city that's still very relevant to this day. Sailors from Norway, Denmark and Sweden would often frequent the port city of Liverpool, and they bought a rather hearty stew with them. The Norwegians called it Lapskaus, and today we know it as just Scouse. Yes. Very nourishing it was for the sailors of the time as mm. well, being as it was a meal that could be cooked at sea. Yes. Which was something that hadn't really been in British sailing culture up until that point. That's right, that's right. So the dish is still popular right here in Liverpool, and it's why Liverpudlians are referred to as Scousers. So you've got, not specifically the Norwegians, but certainly the Scandinavians to thank for why Scousers are called Scousers, essentially. Yes. Also, all the revenue coming into the city centre on a match day. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So Norway would remain in a union with Sweden until 1905, when the two countries peacefully separated following a referendum in which only 184 people voted against the separation. So you're not quite into Falkland's um, referendum territory there, but you're pretty close. I was about to say, you don't often get a peaceful division, but I can see on that kind of weight of evidence why why that would be mm. best for all parties. Yes, yes. So to this day, you're supposed to be able to rile a Norwegian by asking if they're from Western Sweden. Not that I want to try. <laughs> so having gained their independence, Norway tried to be politically neutral and they were certainly trying to be politically neutral by the time the First World War rolled around. Having said that, the Norwegian merchant fleet sided with the British, causing them to be known as a neutral ally. Over half of the Norwegian merchant fleet was sunk by U-boats with the loss of over 2,000 sailors. So the interwar period was marked by a huge amount of political instability. Between 1918 and 1935, Norway had nine governments. And each one was a minority government lasting on average just 18 months. The Labour Party split in 1921, with part of it becoming the Communist Party. From 1935, the Labour Party formed an alliance with the Agrarian Party, offering the country some stability. In the Second World War, Norway's location made it a prime target for invasion by both the Allies and Axis powers. Norway occupied pretty much the entirety of the west coast of the Scandinavian peninsula, with Oslo not far from the entrance to the Baltic Sea. Whoever controlled Norway, therefore, controlled a number of ports and access to iron ore, which of course was vital for any war effort. 
The Nazis invaded, and following resistance from the Norwegians, who were assisted by the British, they took control of the country. The Nazis appointed a puppet prime minister, a man going by the name of Vidkun Quaisling. Sound familiar? Yes, it does. Mm. So the name Quaisling has gone down in history as a byword for collaborator or traitor. And Quaisling himself collaborated with Nazi Germany and played his part in the final solution. Following the war, he was arrested, put on trial and convicted of murder and high treason. He was then executed by firing squad. Quaisling was one of the 25 people executed in the aftermath of the war, a period that saw 53,000 people arrested for treason. So there you go, that's, that's a word that Norway gave to the world, essentially. Yeah. A quas- when I first heard that word, I assumed it was some sort of medieval goblin or something, a Quaisling, but no, it was an actual person who was, uh, who was a puppet ruler of Norway. Joe, I only know that word because I, I once picked up a free fanzine at a concert... It was a concert by a band called the Demolition Doll Rods. Don't Google that. They're usually <laughs> naked. Okay. Um, but, um, yeah, the support band were a band called the Cheaters, and they handed out this, uh, this fanzine of, like, their local scene. And one of the bands was called Quaisling. Yes. But it was spelt Q asterisk sling. <laughs> nice. And then I researched it, and then I thought, ah, yeah, there's an appalling corner of history I've accidentally stumbled on. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, that's, that, that's Quaisling out of the way. So following the war, Norway returned to democracy. The Labour Party won a majority in Mistorting under their leader Einar Gerhardsen, the first time any party had won a majority since 1915. The government enacted socialist policies, building a steel mill, aluminium works and setting up state banks. Norway became part of the Marshall Plan, receiving $400 million in American aid. Despite their previous position of neutrality and the fact that they shared a land border with the Soviet Union, Norway became a founder member of NATO. And this decision and others would cause a split in the Labour Party further down the line. Because, yeah, that was a big deal. Because membership of NATO by the Soviet Union was seen as as, as, as an aggressive act, mm. really. It, it, because the whole point of NATO was to defend countries against the Soviet Union. So... You know, joining it would have been seen as, uh, you know, a very bad thing by the Soviet Union themselves. Yeah. Norway joined the European Free Trade Association in 1960, and the next year the Socialist People's Party was founded in response to this and Norway's membership of NATO. I think it's fair to say that hardcore socialists are rather against the whole European project. I mean, Mm. we're certainly seeing that now with the current Labour leader anyway. (coughs) No names mentioned, Mm, but... um... Well, you just said who it was anyway. So. <laughs> yeah. So in 1966, Norway began its journey into what has become known as its oil age, which it's still in. Prospecting for oil began in that year, and by 1969, the Ecofisk field was discovered. It turned out to be one of the largest in the world. The oil fields were worked on by private companies and the state oil company, the imaginatively titled Statoil. Yeah. The taxation of the private companies and big dividends from Statoil brought in huge revenues for the Norwegian government, but we'll talk about those later. The elections in Norway in the late 60s were very close and demonstrated the importance of coalition governments. In the previous elections, the Labour Party had just about won majorities. In 1965, Labour won 68 of the 150 seats, 
but before non-socialist parties were able to form a coalition. In 1969, Labour got 74 seats, with the rest of the parties forming a coalition with 76 seats. And because this result was so close, people feared that the next election could end up with the starting equally split, so five extra seats were added by the time the 1973 election rolled round. Before this, in 1972, Norway held a referendum on membership of the European Economic Community, or EEC, the predecessor to the EU. Two million votes were cast, and no prevailed by 53.5% to 46.5%, although the vote in the capital Oslo was 66% yes, and the no vote was much stronger in the areas away from the capital. So it's very, very similar to... Very, very similar numbers to the Brexit referendum, really. Yeah, yeah. Similar pattern as well. It's yeah. Very deja vu. Yeah, absolutely. Well, except the other way around. Yes, yes. Vu deja? <laughs> Possibly. So during the 70s, Norway established its exclusive economic zone, securing 700,000 square miles of ocean. Naturally, it led to border disputes, and these disputes with Denmark and Iceland were eventually settled. I don't know if you've ever, ever had a look at a map of the North Sea, seeing who owns what, but it's it's very weird, and sort of bits jut out, and it just, it just looks really, really odd. Oh, I, oh, I've definitely heard seagulls. Oh, right, okay. But, 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 we could do a seagull special, just, just... Well, I like it when you hear seagulls, because it gives the impression that this is recorded in a lighthouse. <laughs> really nice. So, anyway, um, 1981 saw yet another close election, This time the Conservatives formed a coalition with the Centre Party and Christian People's Party. They embarked on a process of deregulation. Now, deregulation back then was really, really interesting because because it's things that nowadays you take for granted. So, until they changed the law, private radio stations were illegal. Oh. And you just think about a modern Western country and you couldn't have private radio stations or private TV stations. I mean, it reminds me of when Margaret Thatcher's Tories got in in 1979. Sorry to mention Thatcher again. And one of the things they deregulated was the sale of telephones. So before then, you could only buy telephones from the post office, and the choice was rather limited. After deregulation, you could buy phones from anywhere. And it was made light of at the time with the availability of novelty phones, like the, like the Mickey Mouse phone, you know, the one where he's walking and he's holding the receiver. Yeah. That sort of thing. But, I mean, can you imagine if we had that sort of regulation today? No iPhones, no Androids. If you wanted a phone, you'd have to get one of three available from the post office. That is ridiculous. Well, that seems ridiculous, and it probably didn't at the time. And while we're on the subject of classic phone handsets, the Garfield who opened his eyes when he picked the phone up. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Always wanted one of those, would still have one, don't have a landline. Yeah, all <laughs> oh, right. But yeah, that sort of phone, illegal in the UK until 1980, I think. So anyway, but the Norwegian Conservatives also cut taxes, removed regulations on borrowing money, and allowed foreigners to buy Norwegian securities. And what happens when financial markets are deregulated? As soon as night follows day, an economic crisis hit in 1986 when foreigners started selling off Norwegian kroner. The crisis caused with Prime Minister... Kare Willock to resign. So, yeah. Deregulation of financial markets, usually a bad idea. 
I mean, it's what caused the stock market crash in 1929, and it's what caused the credit crunch in 2008. So as far as I'm concerned, if a country deregulates its financial markets, it's headed towards a crash. And that's what happened in Norway in the 80s. I'll have to keep a BDI out for that. Mm, Absolutely. So, the next Norwegian general election was in 1989, and after all, it's what we're really here to talk about. Once again, the Labour Party won the most seats, winning 63 out of 165, but they fell well short of a majority. Together, the more right-wing parties bounded together to form a governing coalition, with Jan P. Sisa of the Conservatives as the Prime Minister. However, the coalition was pretty much doomed from the start. When the coalition was formed, the party signed up to a coalition agreement. The agreement included a paragraph known in Norwegian as a paragraph, And I don't speak Norwegian, so I hope I've got that right. And this translates into English as suicide paragraph. In a Great! Nu- yeah. I can't see any problems with that. <laughs> in a nutshell, it states that if an issue arises that the coalition can't agree on, then the coalition will be dissolved. And that took just a year to arise, and once again it was Europe, this time on Norway's potential membership of the EEC. The pro-Europe Conservatives were never going to see eye to eye with the Eurosceptic Centre Party. So on November 3rd, 1990, just nine days after Treehouse of Horror first aired, the coalition informed Storting that it was disbanding. Now you may be thinking, ah, how does a country function without a government? But it's, it, it's more common than you might think. So the job of the government is to make and amend laws. And if the laws of the land don't really need amending, then the country can just kind of chug along. This happened towards the end of the Tory Lib Dem coalition government in the UK between 2010 and 2015, when the coalition parties basically ran out of things to agree on. In Belgium, their 2010 general election led to a fragmented parliament with no party gaining more than 20% of the seats. Good Lord. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's proportional representation for you. Um, I love PR, but uh, yeah, when it causes a result like that, it's sort of... Yeah, I can Go see- back and do it again. Yeah. Do it properly. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm well behind PR, though. Yeah, good. Retrospecticus, we like PR. We do, we do. So Belgium went for 589 days without an elected government, which is a world record. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, wish we could do that. Yeah, 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 that'd be nice of them. Well, having said that, the way I look at it is like this. Imagine the country is a ship... And the government sets the course. If the government sets the ship on a good course towards sunlit uplands, then the ship can fairly happily bob along. If, however, the government sets a course for a massive iceberg, then someone else in government needs to come in and change the course. So, yeah, it, so if a government were to, say, make a law that said in two years' time we're going to leave an organisation of which all of our institutions are based... Just say, just for instance... Just imagine if a government was daft enough to do that, then what would need to happen further down the line is either that same government or a different government would have to change the law so we weren't doing something that daft. (laughs) But what can you do? Politics is the real horror. Mm, Absolutely. So, although Norwegian politics was pretty turbulent in 1990, it did produce one lasting impact. The huge revenues from offshore oil were used to create something that almost defines modern Norway, the Government Pension Fund Global, 
known colloquially as just the oil fund. It was founded in 1990 with the aim of being an investment fund for oil revenues. As of February 2019, it's worth over a trillion US dollars, and it includes 1.3% of all global stocks and shares. So it's worth about $200,000 per Norwegian citizen. Wow. It's just, it's just ridiculous. One in a hundred of the world shares are in this one Norwegian fund. So, so yeah. So following the end of the coalition, a Labour cabinet took over. They called a referendum on membership of the relatively new European Union that took place in 1994. The result was very similar to the 1972 referendum, with no taking 52.2% of the vote. Once again, the strongest yes vote was in Oslo, with no vote being most prevalent in the countryside. As of February 2019, there hasn't been an EU referendum in Norway since. So since then, not a huge amount has changed politically in Norway. And I'm tempted to end this story with a pun, but there's Norway I'm going to do that. Hey, hey. Badum. Fantastic. Now, I just have to circle back to The Simpsons for a second to say, did you know there's a an episode of The Simpsons that features a strong Norway theme? I didn't. I was wondering... I, I, I was racking my brains to think, has Norway ever been mentioned in The Simpsons? And I couldn't think of one. It is in season 20, episode 21, oh, okay. an episode called Coming to Homerica. What happens there is, for reasons I won't go into... There's a financial collapse in the town of Ogdenville, which you may remember was put on the mm-hmm. map by a monorail. <laughs> yeah. Um, it turns out that they are the descendants of Norwegian settlers. And an immigration-style story plays out where the Norwegian settlers of Ogdenville come and live in Springfield, take the jobs that nobody wants, and then the people of Springfield decide they want to kick them out. Right. And okay. build a wall. Oh, right. Topical. Well, I don't even think it was it, at the time. Even though it was season 20. Which What, what, what year are we talking about, season 20? Uh, 2009. May 17th, okay. 2009, that. Okay. Which means we've got, what, 17 years to go? 27 <laughs> years to go until we get to that? Yeah, yeah. We, we, if we're still doing this show by then, we'll be, we'll be old. Um, <laughs> cut out whichever of those was wrong. <laughs> Probably the 17th one. Uh, And if we are still doing the show by that stage, you can bet your sweet bippy that if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do that by tweeting us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because even in 27 years' time, we won't have. Uh, Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Tom, I really enjoyed that. I can't wait for the next Treehouse of Horror, but I'm going to have to wait about 20 episodes. Yes, afraid so, afraid so. Also, wasn't it weird doing this in February? Yeah, but didn't we do a Christmas episode in, like, June or something? Yeah, yeah. I guess we'll have to get used to that. Yeah, yeah. And on that chilling note, (laughs) we will return you to your usual scare-free podcast next time round. So good night, listeners, and keep watching the skis! I mean, skies. (laughs) Bye, everyone.